As we come to God's word, let's spend a couple of minutes just praying together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you've given it to us, that you've revealed the truth to us. We pray now uh, that you will give us ears to hear and hearts to understand, and that, Lord, we'll be encouraged and built up as we hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last school holidays, my family and I went camping. Now, I love camping. I love being outside, sitting around a campfire, not doing much of anything at all. To me, nothing really beats it. This camping trip was no different. I loved it. But there's one aspect of camping that I don't love. Setting up. The weather's always wrong. It's hot or it's cold or it's raining. Jade and I can't figure out how to fit all our stuff on our site. We've forgotten to bring the hammer, a tent pole breaks. The kids want their bike and some food and a swim all at the same time. We have a heated discussion about whether or not I've attached the annex correctly. It's stressful and it's not the best way to start a holiday. Every time I go camping, I find myself asking, is all this really worth it? If you're a Christian, I wonder if you've ever asked yourself, is all this really worth it? Is following Jesus really worth it? If I still suffer just like everyone else, if I still get sick, if things still go wrong for me, really, what's the point? And then as Christians, we've got to struggle with, with the pain of seemingly unanswered prayer and loved ones who die without knowing Jesus. As churches, we feel like we're, we're constantly short of the resources we need to do what we have to do. We struggle with a culture whose values increasing, increasingly clash with our own, which can leave us feeling excluded and isolated. Being a Christian's hard. Is it all really worth it? We've been working through this book of Ruth, and so far we've seen that though tragic circumstances and suffering are a reality, we can trust our God because he's sovereign and he's kind. We can move forward with hope because God is doing something good with our suffering for his purposes. But maybe you've been left asking as we work through uh, this book, do I really want to move forward with Jesus? It's all so hard. Wouldn't it just be easier to eat, drink and be merry just like everybody else? Today, this final chapter of Ruth is going to show us that following Jesus is worth it. And even if that question hasn't really come up in your head, it's a, still a great encouragement to keep following Jesus, even when things get tough. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 to 12, where we see that following Jesus is worth it because it frees us to do what is right. Now, you might have heard the saying that nice guys finish last, which captures how lots of people today think the world works. You don't get ahead by doing what's right. If you want to win, you've got to do whatever it takes. And in a culture where that's the prevailing attitude, 
it's hard not to get sucked in. Most people want to do the right thing, but if everyone else around us is just doing whatever it takes, what choice do we really have? In the book of Ruth, Boaz is the quintessential nice guy. At every step, he's done what's right. He's been kind to Ruth and put her needs first. He's allowed her to gather in his field and provided for her. He hasn't taken advantage of her when he had every opportunity to. He hasn't even let passion run away with him and married her on the spot after she proposed to him in the dead of the night. Instead, Boaz has insisted that things be done the right way. And now, in these verses, it appears that this nice guy is going to finish last. Boaz is not going to get the girl. She's going to go to the other guardian redeemer, the one who's more closely related than Boaz and so has first claim on Ruth and her property. So what's happening in these verses? Boaz goes to the town gate and he finds this other guardian redeemer. He goes to the town gate because it's the central area of the town and it's where all the official business takes place. It's a bit like a courthouse or the council offices. Boaz goes there because he's got official business to take care of. And lo and behold, this other guardian redeemer just so happens to be there when Boaz arrives. Boaz calls this guardian redeemer over as, long as, as well as 10 elders of the town and they sit down while Boaz explains the situation. What we've got here is a city council quorum. These 10 elders are witnesses to the, businesses, to the business that's taking place between Boaz and the other guardian redeemer. Whatever's going to happen, it's going to be verifiable and official because these guys witnessed it. There's going to be no turning back. It's going to be in the record books. Now, the whole scene's very official and above board. Boaz has made sure of that. He is totally unwilling to take any shortcuts. He's going to make sure that if Ruth's to be his wife and he's to take on this responsibility of guardian redeemer, it's going to be done the right way. What he and Ruth have discussed in the dark, Boaz is bringing out into the light so that everyone knows he's doing things the right way. But his right way does seem a little bit odd. In verse 3, he tells the other guardian redeemer that Naomi's selling a piece of land that belonged to Elimelech, a piece of information that, as the reader, we didn't know until now. So he presents this other guardian redeemer with this fantastic opportunity to purchase a piece of land and increase his wealth. And of course, this other guardian redeemer is very excited by the prospect. He says in verse 4, I'll redeem it. But there's a catch, a string attached that Boaz now reveals. He says in verse 5, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabites, the dead man's widow. Boaz is saying, Hold on, friend, not so fast. There's more to this deal than meets the eye. This is a package deal. If you want that piece of land, you've also got to take Ruth as well. 
it seems a little bit of an odd way to present an opportunity. We might expect Boaz to say it the other way round. Look, if you're happy to marry Ruth, you also get this great piece of land. But he doesn't. Why does Boaz say it like this? Well, the first thing to to make clear is that Boaz hasn't done anything sneaky or devious. He's given all the information. Everything the other guardian redeemer needs to know is clear. But I think what Boaz is doing is making sure that the deal lands in his favor. There's absolutely no doubt that Boaz wants Ruth. He doesn't seem overly concerned with this piece of land. It's Ruth he wants, but this is a package deal. So he presents the information in a way to ensure that the deal goes his way. I think about it like this. If I were to say to my kids, if if I say to my kids, if you finish your dinner, you also get dessert, I'm trying to uh, give them an incentive to eat. I want them to do their duty, eat their dinner, and I finish with the reward, the sweetener. You also get dessert. Does it land differently if I say it the other way around? I think it does. You can have this dessert. Great, thanks, Dad. But you have to eat your dinner first. The first one gives me an incentive to do my duty, to take advantage of the opportunity, whereas the second one kind of sours the opportunity by presenting the bad news last. The information's exactly the same, there's no deception, but the way it lands is slightly different. So Boaz presents the information the way he he does because he doesn't want this other guardian redeemer to marry Ruth. He presents Ruth as a sort of disincentive. You can have this land, but you've got to marry Ruth. Boaz is being honest. He's doing what's right. He's giving the other guardian redeemer every opportunity. But he's also being shrewd. And it has the desired effect. This other kinsman redeemer changes his mind and backs out of the sale. With Ruth included in the deal, it becomes too costly and he's out. Boaz can now become the rightful guardian redeemer of Ruth. So they make the deal official with this slightly strange custom of exchanging a sandal, and Boaz officially announces that Ruth's going to become his wife. The elders and everyone at the gate witness the deal, and they endorse this union with a series of blessings in verses 11 and 12. So the nice guy does get the girl. He trusts God, he does what's right, and in this instance, things work out the way Boaz wants. Boaz plans accorded with God's. If we follow Jesus, we're also free to do what's right. We're free from feeling like we have to take shortcuts or do whatever's necessary to ensure we get the outcome we desire. We're free because we trust that God is sovereign and he will make sure that's what best occurs. Even if it's not how we see things. 
we're free to move from doing whatever it takes to asking, what's the right thing to do in this situation? We can still act shrewdly and wisely, and we should. We're still in the world. But if we're Christian, our first question can be, how can I do what's right, rather than how can I get what I want? What might doing what's right look like in real life? What's the difference between shrewdness and shortcuts? Well, it might be shrewd when your fiancé comes to you and suggests you move in together to save money before you get married, for you to let your fiancé move in whilst you move back home with your parents until you're actually married. Then you can move in together. Moving in immediately would be nice, it'd be practical, but it's a shortcut. It's not what God wants. It might be shrewd or wise to turn down that promotion at work because the hours it would require would make it really difficult for you to serve your family and your church well. To take the promotion might be nice. It might lead to some nice things and some nice holidays, but is that actually what God wants for you? Is it taking a shortcut to a type of prosperity that Christians aren't promised? So because Boaz trusted God, he could do what was right. Likewise, we're free to do what's right if we follow Jesus and we can be sure that the result's going to be positive. And that's what we learn in verses 13 to 17, the positive result for those who follow Jesus. The positive result for those who follow Jesus is, that the, is the complete reversal of all the effects of sin. And that's our second point for today. Following Jesus is worth it because it results in complete reversal of all the effects of sin. Now, this story ends with the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth falls pregnant and she has a son. But the women in Bethlehem say something interesting in verse 17. They say, Naomi has a son. Not Ruth has a son, but the old woman, Naomi, has a son. Why do they see it like that? It's because the point of the story is made in the life of Naomi, not Ruth. This whole story shows us that though Naomi thought God had turned against her, what was actually happening was God was planning for her redemption. He was planning to reverse everything that had gone wrong in Naomi's life. And now, at the end of chapter 4, the story has come full circle. The reversal is complete. Death has become birth. Barrenness has become conception. Widowhood has become marriage. Sorrow has become joy. The bitter woman from chapter 1 is now full of joy, and the women of the town who stood in disbelief as they looked upon Naomi's tragic circumstance, now pronounce a blessing over her. This woman who felt like she was empty, as she stands with this little baby in her arms, is full to overflowing. 
The truth is, if you're a Christian, all the loss you've ever experienced and all the tragedy will one day be reversed as well. Notice what it says at the end of verse 17. It says, the women say, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What Naomi didn't realize at the time is that this baby was so much more than she imagined. This child, Obed, was to be the grandfather of King David, the greatest king in Israel's history and the one who would, at least for a time, restore God's people. And King David points forward to an even greater king, King Jesus, who ushers in a new age of peace with God, an age when sin is dealt with and all its consequences are undone. An age when Jesus' people are free from pain and suffering, tragedy, loss, guilt, and grief. With the resurrection of King Jesus, that new age has already begun. If you're a Christian, you've already begun to experience that new age. Our relationship with God has already been reversed. We've moved from being God's enemies to God's children. And Jesus' resurrection guarantees so much more. Just as he physically rose from the dead, we too will rise from physical death when he returns. What began at the resurrection of Jesus will then be complete. Sin and all its effects will be done away with and we'll experience a complete reversal of all the tragedy we've ever experienced in this life. Revelation 21 tells us what we who believe have to look forward to on that day. In Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, we read, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's what's coming if we believe in Jesus. If you're a Christian, and you feel a bit like tragedy and heartache might just be your lot in life, it's not. This isn't how it ends. When Jesus returns, it's all going to be reversed. Following Jesus will be worth it on that day. But there's one more important thing that the book of Ruth tells us about why following Jesus is worth it. And it comes in that little genealogy in verses 18 to 24. Following Jesus is worth it because it makes us part of something bigger. We've all got this desire to be part of something bigger than ourselves. We want to know that our lives have purpose beyond our own existence. We want to know that our lives matter. 
And this little genealogy shows us exactly that. It shows us that for those who follow Jesus, we're part of something bigger than ourselves. Notice how Naomi and Ruth and Boaz's story now sort of fades into the background as it's consumed by something bigger. The main story is actually their connection to King David. They're a link in the chain. Don't get me wrong, their story's important, but it's not the main story. They're part of a much bigger story, a better story, God's story. If you were to turn to the start of Matthew's gospel, you'll see in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 16, another genealogy. The genealogy of Jesus. And you'll see there that the same genealogy from the book of Ruth appears in verses 5 to 6. So even the great King David is a link in the chain of a better story. God's story. His plan to redeem all his people through King Jesus. Just as Naomi's story is not the main story, neither is ours. We're part of a way better story, a bigger story that continues long after our life on this earth here ends. Each and every Christian is part of the story of God redeeming his creation. If you're a Christian, every heartache, every failure, every success, every bit of joy fits into that masterpiece that is God's tale of redemption. Our lives have purpose. They have meaning because God has saved us through Jesus and we're part of his story. Now, if you're not a Christian, maybe you've looked at Christians and they still seem to do it pretty tough. Following Jesus just doesn't seem worth it. It's true. Christians do still suffer, sometimes more than most. But the difference is for the Christian, this broken, frustrating life is the worst we're ever going to experience. One day, it's all going to be reversed. For us, the best is yet to come. If you're not a Christian, this life, with all its hardship, is actually the best you can ever hope for. It doesn't get any better. But it can. If you trust in Jesus, trust him as your saviour and king, you can look forward to the complete reversal that's coming to all who trust in him. Though as followers of Jesus, we still face many hard times in this life, we know that they're not evidence that God's turned against us. God is sovereign and he's kind. He's always working to redeem and restore us as part of his plan to restore all of creation. Our story is part of his story. Our story 
He's part of the story of Jesus. Though following Jesus doesn't guarantee a smooth sailing, we know and we can be sure it's worth it in the end. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the certain and sure hope that we have in Jesus. Lord, thank you so much that because Jesus died and rose again, for us who believe in him, we can be sure that one day he's coming back and when he does, um, he's gonna make everything right. Lord, we can look forward to that day because we're already forgiven. Lord, we can look forward to that day because of Jesus, we've been adopted into your family. Father, help us to persevere, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, to hope and trust in him as our Lord and Saviour. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.